Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Psalms, chapter 9. Um, if you have a bulletin, you'll find the notes for this morning's message are in the bulletin. Uh, you can follow along there. The text is written on the back if you don't have a Bible. And we will, God willing, be finishing our two-part study of Psalms 9 and 10. Now, I'll read them in just a moment, but as you turn, I'll remind you that I suggested last Sunday that Psalms 9 and Psalm 10 are actually one composition, one psalm. The numbers, the psalm divisions were added in, in, in many hundreds or thousands of years after they'd been written. The Hebrew Masoretic text is simply, um, has, doesn't have the numbers. And for a number of reasons, but most directly the fact that Psalm 9 and the ESV, I'll read the note again, the ESV has a footnote um, for Psalm 9 saying this, Psalm 9 and 10 together follow an acrostic pattern. The pattern being that in Hebrew, each um, verse or each verse couplet would begin with the, the first and the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, on and on. And 10 picks it up and finishes it which again strongly suggests they are one composition. In fact, in the Greek translation or in Greek translations of the Old Testament, they're listed as one. Um, and we've seen some of the themes combine in them together. Also, the, the clearest way that we have to divide Psalms is through the Psalm titles. So we're confident that what is marked as Psalm 9 is indeed a new song because it has a title to the choir master according to Moth Laban, a Psalm of David. There is no psalm title in between 9 and 10, so there's no reason why it could not be viewed as one composition. So for those reasons, we've been studying them together, and I think looking at them as one psalm is very instructive. We'll see this morning, I hope, as well. And we made it through um, verses, uh, let me see here, for the first 14 verses of Psalm 9. So God willing, we'll finish that and then conclude with Psalm 10 as well. I'm going to read it now, as I believe the psalm title is correctly attached. You can listen to the ABF to get some more on that. Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. A psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on your throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction for those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises. Then in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. Um, 
The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, and the net that they hid, their own foot, has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgments. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higiyon, Salah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For all the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Salah. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught by the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces God. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His way prospers at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved, though all throughout all generations I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing, and deceit and oppression are under his tongue. Our mischief and iniquity, he sits in ambush in the villages. In the hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You've been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more to the choir master. Lord God, as we conclude this study and this psalm, We pray that you would give us eyes to see. These are themes and topics that your word speaks of regularly, but can oftentimes be foreign to us. And as we look at wickedness in the world around us, as we look at oppression, injustice, help us to be instructed by this song, how we ought to respond, how we ought to view it, and how we ought to cry out to you. In Jesus' name, amen. God gave his people over 150 songs to sing. That's the first thing I'd remind you of as we think about this. This is a song God gave to his people. In fact, the inscription to the choir master even more strongly suggests general singing. And yet the things we sing of in this song are not the types of things we generally sing about on Sunday morning. David has a 11-verse extended character sketch of the wicked. I'm not aware of any songs that we sing that have verse after verse telling us what the wicked are like. And yet I would suggest if anything, we err, not God in his wisdom. 
So these are things we need to look at. And our culture today is, is very much caught up with and concerned with questions and issues of justice in the society, the oppression of the poor. This psalm deals with that. And, and there are some who I think want to make too much of it, some who want to stick their head in the sand and look away from it. And the Bible deals with these things in reality. These things are brought into the worship of God. They're not excluded from it. The very fact that they're in these songs means our concern for the poor being oppressed, our concern for injustice, our concern for the wicked and what is taking place around us socially should be brought into worship, shouldn't be left outside. And David in Psalm 9 and 10 is dealing with his praise and his prayer to God for his just rule and defense against the wicked. Um, There are really two classes of people in Psalm 9 and 10. There is, in verse 3, my enemies. Verse 5, the nations, the wicked. Verse 6, the enemy. Verse 8, the world, the peoples. Verse 15, the nations. Verse 16, the wicked. Verse 17, the wicked and the nations. Chapter 10 Verse 2, the wicked. Verse 3, the wicked and the one greedy for gain. Verse 4, the wicked. Then all those pronouns, his ways, his foes, he says, his mouth, he sits, he lurks, he lurks, he seizes, he draws, he says. Verse 13, the wicked. Verse 15, the wicked and evildoer. And finally, simply in verse 18, man. That's, That's one person or type of person we're dealing with. And then the other side, we have... David himself, the afflicted. Now look at these categories. We have verse 12. For he who avenges is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. We have the afflicted, which David puts himself in in verse 3. And be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction. Chapter 9, 13. And then even more extensively in um, Psalm 10, we're going to see some of these categories. Verse 2, the poor. Verse 8, the innocent and the helpless. Verse 9, the poor, and again the poor. Verse 10, the helpless. Verse 14, the helpless and the fatherless. Verse 17, the afflicted. Verse 18, the fatherless and the oppressed. So we're dealing with the powerful, the arrogant, the mighty wicked against the innocent, the helpless, the poor, the fatherless, and the oppressed. That's the two groups seen in this psalm. And we're dealing not just with the poor and the afflicted, but the faithful poor and the afflicted. These are those who seek God. Look at chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, do not forsake those who seek you. So there's no fundamental virtue in being poor or being oppressed. It doesn't make you fundamentally righteous. But we're looking at the conflict between the the strong, the powerful, the proud wicked, who we see in chapter 10 are, are devouring and consuming the poor, and we're looking at the righteous, faithful, poor, oppressed, orphan, fatherless, innocent, and helpless. Our culture today wants to draw the lines a little differently. We're much more concerned when we deal with oppression, with, with gender, race, sexuality, things like that. But notice that some of these categories do overlap. The poor, the helpless, the fatherless, the afflicted, the oppressed. The psalm's dealing with that. And by virtue of singing about it corporately, 
These are things that we're talking to God about in the context of worship. They aren't to be left outside. David is greatly vexed about wickedness around him. And so by way of review, um, I noted last week that I thought it was striking, considering that David himself is in affliction. David himself in this psalm is concerned about his very life and death. We get that from verse 13 and 14 of chapter 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction for those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death. David sees death as a very real possibility. And we know from reading First and Second Samuel, there are years upon years where David was a fugitive, fleeing Saul, with betrayers constantly around him, constantly on the flight, constantly having to be told Saul's coming, getting up and going. And so David is in real affliction. David is really facing life and death danger. And he's not just dealing with that. He's crying out about that. But he's also seeing the larger issue of oppression around him. And yet David does not begin his prayer to God, this song, by calling out for help. Rather, with a commitment to praise. And we talked about that last week, how sometimes praise comes out naturally. Sometimes praise comes out just the overflow of the heart. And sometimes we've got to say, no, I will. I will give thanks, verse 1. I will recount. I will be glad and exult. I will sing praise. And David begins this psalm with a commitment, first and foremost, I need to praise God. Uh, and, and that is very instructive for us in our affliction, in our fear, in our difficulties, whatever they might be. A determination to praise God. Second, David takes comfort in God's past judgment. And, and in verses 3 through 6, He thinks of the times God has stopped the wicked. I'm going to suggest to you that the exodus from Egypt is is on his mind. The conquest of Canaan is on his mind. We'll see some verses this morning that I think link with that. And so he's looking back at how an oppressed, enslaved people cried out to God and God delivered them. The Red Sea parted. Pharaoh's army was destroyed. A, A weak and powerless nation like Israel went in and possessed the land of Israel and defeated the Canaanites and the Hittites. And as David says in verse five, you've rebuked the nations, you've made the wicked perish, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. And there are some of those tribes that the Bible records that historians scoffed at as ever existing, such as the Hittites, only in recent years to find archeological evidence that they existed. This is how thoroughly God wiped them off of the land. You blotted out their name forever and ever. So David looks to that and he takes some comfort. Which then leads to his certainty that God is the eternal king. And we saw that David's certainty is in verse 7 through 10. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne in justice. Whatever's taking place in injustice around us, whatever's going on, it's not that God is off of his throne. It's not that God is out of control. It's not that Satan took an advantage while God wasn't paying attention and snuck something in. Whatever is happening fits with God's rule, even as David doesn't understand it. And that is an important thing to grasp. We can affirm, we need to be able to affirm God's absolute rule and control over the affairs of nations, over the, over the affairs of individuals, over um, bacteria and viruses, over everything. We need to affirm God is in control. He is ruling, even as we can cry out and say, I don't understand, make it stop. We need to be able to do both. David does both. God is ruling, help me. Why do you wait? They're both in this psalm. 
It's not either or. We're tempted to think it's either or. Either you're, I believe in the sovereignty of God, and you sort of go through the stoic life, and when you fall down the stairs, you say, well, thank goodness that's over with. That's one way. Or you simply are crying out, but you can't imagine that God's in control, and so you come up with excuses for why God is a gentleman. He doesn't force this way. The Bible wants to insist God is absolutely sovereign. He's on his throne. He's judging the nations, and I don't understand it. Help! You can do both. This psalm does both. And David takes his confidence and his certainty that God is king. He is on his throne. He has established his throne in justice. Verse 8, he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Whatever's going on hasn't stopped that. That has not changed. Then we get to David's call as he considers God's goodness to praise. Now there's his individual commitment to praise goes corporate in verses 11 and 12. And then, finally then, only after God, David has praised the Lord, after David has remembered God's sovereignty and his goodness in the past, after he invites others to sing with him, then and only then does he give his cry, deliver me. Verse 13 and 14, this is where we left off last week. Um, deliver me. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction for those who hate me. O you who lift me from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I rejoice in your salvation. There's, there's David's request. He's, a, he's confident God's on his throne and God's ruling. He's saying, help. And he'll ask questions. Why? Why are you doing what you're doing? I know you've got a good reason. I know you're ruling. I know you're in charge, but I don't get it. That's okay, too. Affirming that God is in control is not the same thing as saying, I know what he's doing. I know it's good. I don't have an idea what he's doing. You, you, you're in good company in Psalm 9 and 10. So let's, let's now move on to finish Psalm 9, and we'll try to get into Psalm 10 with David's confidence. We've seen David's commitment, his comfort, his certainty, his call, his cry. Yes, you've probably guessed it. The rest of these blanks are going to be C's. David's confidence. And this is this. His confidence is just as God has in the past judged the wicked, just as God has in the past protected the poor, God will in the future do the same. God will judge. Verses 15 through twenty. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higion, Shalah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men, Salah. So, David's confidence, God will judge. Now, this is something we need to be careful with. The Bible again and again puts the judgment of the unrighteous as a comfort and a hope. And we want to avoid becoming um, masochists, people who delight in the pleasure of others. We, we don't want to. We certainly don't want to be people who look forward with glee to the judgment. Yet, it's inescapable from this psalm. It's inescapable from the New Testament. The, God expects us to derive hope and comfort from the fact that he will settle the score. And I think the logic works something like this. God says to me, Jeremy, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Don't resist an evil man. Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm to do it in the confidence that whatever injustices I face, whatever wrongs accrue to me, will be righted. 
will be righted because precisely because God will judge, precisely because God will bring every word into account, I can leave that with him and I can go love my enemy and I can go endure mistreatment. Make no mistake, there is not a single sin anyone has committed against you or that you have ever committed that will go unpunished. Perfect righteousness will be done. That is David's hope in dealing with the evil around him, the oppression in society. His hope is not in education, not in government programs. His hope's not ultimately in anything like that. Not that David would not, as king, try to restrain evil. I'm not saying that those things are worthless. What I'm saying is, first and foremost, his hope is there is a coming day of judgment in which the Lord will judge the nations in righteousness. In that context, I can be content. In that context, I can wait. That's David's resolution and his um, confidence. So first, I want you to notice this. God's justice is righteous and fitting. God's justice is righteous and fitting. David has pointed this out in this psalm. If there's a correspondence, it's not capricious. It's not arbitrary. Notice this. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. And the point is that's fitting. They were designing evil and mischief. They were plotting treachery and it's come upon them. That is fitting. That is corresponding. It's appropriate. That's the notion. In the net that they hit, hid, their own foot has been caught. Again, fitting. Corresponding. It's appropriate. Again, in verse 16, look at the end. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Verse 17, the wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forgot God. And I want you to link that all the way back to verse 5. They forgot God, and we've already heard in verse 5, God has caused their name to be forgotten. Notice the correspondence, the fittingness. God has blotted out their name forever. They will be forgotten. And archaeologists will say, what Hittites? They'll be forgotten. Because precisely they have forgotten God. These things line up. And the reader, the the one singing this song is meant to see God's justice is righteous. It's not capricious. It's not arbitrary. He's not overreacting. It is fitting. That's the first thing to see. God's justice is righteous and fitting. Righteous and fitting. Again, we see that also in Psalm 10. This is another one of the themes that link. Look at verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursues the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Same concept. Fitting justice. Righteous and fitting justice. Second, and we again as as Westerners are very uncomfortable with God's judgment. The doctrine of hell is one of the first doctrines to be eroded in the church. And I want you to see here that God does not just reveal his character and his nature in his saving acts, in his love on the cross. He does. He reveals his character and nature in his judgment as well. And David insists that as well. Look at verse 16. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. And this is the link, I believe, to the Exodus. Because, I'll just turn there. I got my little, there we go. 
In Exodus 7, 5, we read, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So God's declaring that in his judgment on Egypt, in the ten plagues, in the death of the firstborn, in the destruction of Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea, he is making himself known. He is revealing himself. God reveals himself in judgment. In fact, Rahab would not have become part of the messianic line, become faithful to Israel had she not heard of these things. Listen to Joshua 2. So we, we can read, and God says, I've raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose that I might make an example of him, that I might smash him. And we say, that sounds kind of frightening. Even in that, God is making himself known so that a Canaanite prostitute hundreds of miles away might hear of it. The defeat is so epic. The destruction is so absolute that the word travels. And when the spies encounter Rahab, she says this. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And the fear of you has fallen upon us. The inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before, when you, before you when you came up out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Ammonites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted away, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is the God in heavens and above and on the earth beneath. How else is Rahab going to come to fear, trust, and ally herself with the Lord God and his people if God was not making himself known in judgment? So David insists that as well. So as we look at God's judgments, we take comfort and hope in it. We're not delighting in the suffering of the wicked. We're first recognizing it's fitting. It's just. We're second, we're seeing that even in that judgment, God is revealing himself. Even in that judgment, God is making himself known that others might be saved. Next, um, God's judgment makes himself known. Point C, present injustice does not negate God's care. Now, David has insisted in verse 9 and 10 of Psalm 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, the stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know you put their trust in you, for you have not forsaken those who seek you. And yet, even after saying that, it may appear as if it's precisely that's taking on and that taking place. And that is not what is taking place. Verse 18. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. Well, it seems to suggest right now they are, or it looks like they are. The hope of the poor shall not perish forever. And again, suggesting that is precisely what it looks like is happening right now. And so David can insist on God's goodness. He's a stronghold. He helps. He hears. He's righteous. He's on his throne. And recognize it doesn't look like he's helping the poor right now. And again, we need a theology that can insist on those things and and the tension. And David is going to resolve the tension by crying out to God. Which brings us then to point D. Present injustice does not negate God's care, but present injustice rightly drives us to prayer. When you don't understand, when what God has said he will do, what God says he is doing, does not seem to line up with what you see in front of you, get on your knees. David pleads with God, verse 19. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men, Salah. So he's praised God. He's remembered his past judgments. 
And yet he sees things going on around him that don't line up, and he cries out, inviting God's judgment. Then point E, present injustice rightly leads us to desire judgment. There is a right desire that God would come. We sang our, our final song this morning about Jesus coming to judge the world. And when I read and see what the evil going on in the world around me, it is right for that desire, come Lord judge. Now what's wrong is me to say vengeance is mine, I will repay, I'll take care of it. That's the wrong response, but it's come Lord Jesus, come. There's a reason why there's just chapter after chapter in the book of Revelation un, un, unpacking in detail God's judgment on the world. It is meant to give us hope. How else can we endure mistreatment and wrongs? We do it in the confidence that there is a coming judgment. And it will be a just and fitting judgment. It will be a judgment that makes God's character known. It's a judgment that we are to be praying for. This, that's what this psalm is saying. If we're to sing the songs that God has given us to sing, we'll be singing for the Lord to do justice. That's exactly the, the note that Psalm 10 picks up on, as you'll see. As we now move from David's confidence to David's character sketch. Yes, I know it's kind of cheating. It's two words, but characterization just seemed a little obnoxious. David's character sketch, verses 1 through 11. And here we get 11 verses describing in detail not just what the wicked do, but what they think and what's going on in their heart. And when you encounter something like that, and again, these are not the types of things that generally make up our songs. Go read Psalm 14. Go read Psalm 73. You'll see extended expositions of who the wicked are and what they're like. And so before we dive into this next point, David's character sketch, the wicked, what is it for? What is it for? I want to suggest a couple things. One, we, we aren't meant to close our eyes to evil. You can't speak about it in this detail if you don't see it. So any response that just says, okay, I don't want to think about that, I don't want to go there, I don't want to know about that, is wrong. David is only able to speak with this clarity because he's seen and understood. Doesn't mean he has a morbid fascination with it, but, but he's certainly not averting himself from it. He sees it going on around him. The second reason, I think, that this is given is not that we can become self-righteous, but that we might see it in ourselves. Because if you, if you keep reading in 2 Samuel, you'll find a story about David hunting a poor man and killing him and stealing his wife, Right? After all, who are the wicked? I'm the wicked. You're the wicked. Now we hope God changes our hearts and God forgives us and he, he, he gives us a, a new spirit, a new heart within us, but we've all been the wicked and we all have within our hearts the potential in the future of being the wicked. And so perhaps an 11-verse exposition of what the wicked's like is meant to help us look to ourselves as well. We are to hate it. We're going to see the horizontal wickedness against fellow man and the vertical wickedness. And so as we study through this characterization, it's not as though I think that the wicked at all times exemplify every one of these things. That's how we can tend to get ourselves off the hook. Because you're going to read some of these things, and you're going to be like, well, maybe sometimes I do that. It's not, well, you have to do every one of these things to be the wicked. Rather, this are the types of things the wicked do. This is the types of things the wicked think, say to themselves, Let's not think and say these things to ourselves. Let's not do these things. Okay? So David's character sketch, the wicked. Um, and it begins with an opening prayer for action, which is really what dovetails with the end of nine. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? 
Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now there's the other piece. Absolute confidence. God's in control. God knows what he's doing. God is on his throne. Lord, I don't get it. Arise, do something. Both can coexist. Both can righteously coexist. They're in one song. And then we're going to see his character sketch. And it's 11 verses. We're going to move through this quickly. I just want to look at it in relationship to God and in relationship to man. In other words, think of it horizontally and vertically. How, how do the wicked treat fellow men, and how do the wicked think and respond and react towards God? Okay? So we're going to sort of cherry pick from these 11 verses. Let me, let me read the verses. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursues the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts the desire of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces God. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. His judgments run high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Okay. First, um, he renounces God and does not seek him. There is some inconsistency here um, with this wicked person because we, we get these statements of what he is saying in his heart. We get insights into what, how he's thinking. And I believe the purpose for that is that we might not think that or when we catch ourselves thinking the same thing, we can go, uh-oh. So he curses and renounces God, verse 4. He does not seek him. And he tells himself there is no God. Yet, in verse 11, he tells himself God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He'll never see it. And in verse 13, the wicked renounces God and says in his heart, you will not call to account. And, and they're reminded there are two tenets of atheism. There is no God, and I hate him. And if you speak with most atheists, that's what you'll encounter. Because there is a tension. They're mad. Why is the number one charge of atheists the problem of evil? There would be no problem of evil if there is no God. It's just matter doing what matter does at this temperature. They want to insist there is no God, and yet they're really mad at how he's ordered the world. Those are the two tenets of atheism. That's what's going on in here. He renounces God and does not seek. And by the way, notice the, the comparison here. Verse 10 of chapter 9. Those who know you by name put their trust in you. Why? O Lord, you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So we've already learned God protects those who seek him. And what's one of the things that characterizes the wicked? They don't seek God. They've renounced him. They'll take care of it on their own. We're going to see they're trusting in their own strength, their own might, their own wisdom, their own wealth. I don't need God. I'll take care of it myself. I'm not seeking God. Okay, so what does that mean? It means if you find your confidence, I find my confidence. If I'm trusting in myself, I'm not seeking God. That's the type of thing the wicked do. It's the type of thing the wicked do. David is... is, is provoked by the fact that even though he's just saying about how God is good and those who seek him, he protects and guards the wicked, renounce God, they don't seek him. They say he doesn't exist. Second, 
They're self-confident, proud, and boastful. Self-confident, proud, and boastful. The wicked boasts the desire of his soul, verse 3. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces God. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. So in his own sight, he's saying he's prospering. He thinks he's doing well. And because of that, he boasts and becomes self-sufficient. He doesn't seek God. I don't need God. He is prospering. His strength is growing. His bank accounts are full. Okay, what does that mean for us? If you draw comfort and security from your bank account, that's not a good place to draw comfort and security. We've already found out where security is. Where is a stronghold to be found? Chapter 9, verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold. Your money is not a stronghold. Your intelligence is not a stronghold. Your savings accounts and securities are not strongholds. The Lord is a stronghold. Only the wicked find a stronghold in those things. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. He prospers at all times. And in contrast, God's judgments are on high, but he doesn't see them. He doesn't see what God is doing. He puffs at his foes, and he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. So he's self-confident, he's boastful. He renounces and doesn't seek God. And, point three, in his prosperity, he denies the reality of judgment. We've seen that David is finding comfort and hope in God's coming judgment, and the wicked deny judgment coming. That's what we see there. Look at verses eight. um, No, sorry, look at verse six. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet in adversity. Look down to verse 11. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Verse 13. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? The Bible insists that everybody knows God exists. The Bible insists everyone knows judgment's coming. So if you're going to take a preposterous stance like opposing the God of the universe, you're going to want to tell yourself lies like there is no judgment. There is no coming judgment. You you want to tell yourself that lie. The wicked tells himself that over and over again. For us, if you ever tell yourself something like, I'll get away with it. God will forgive me. It's okay. That sounds an awful lot like this. If you excuse your sin and think, God's just full of grace, and he'll just, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's no big deal. That's the type of thing these people are doing. So as we apply it to ourselves, be, be cautious when you know you're planning to do something wrong and your theological excuse is, God will forgive. God will give grace. It'll be okay. I'll get away with it. Because what you're saying, in effect, is God will not take into account. God will not judge. God will not recompense. That's what the wicked do. That's what David thought when he killed Uriah. He thought he got away with it. thought he covered it up. God's people can be guilty of thinking these ways and doing these things. That's my point. So in relation to God, he renounces God, does not seek him. He's self-confident, proud, and boastful. And in his prosperity, he denies the judgment of reality. Okay, how is he in relationship to men? Well, first we see his words. His words are cursing, deceit, oppression, mischief, and iniquity. Look at verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit 
and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. It's interesting we start with words. The Bible has a lot to say about words and the words that come out of our mouth. Jesus insists that the words that come out of your mouth reflect your heart. You know, we, we oftentimes do the opposite. We lose our temper. Someone cuts in front of us. Something corrupt comes out. We say, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Stub my toe, that's why I said it. No, that's precisely what you meant to say. Normally, we're smart enough to know, don't say that, stupid. That's why children are so delightful, because they'll say what they're thinking. And, and we look at them, I can't believe you said that. We think the same things. We just know better than to say that. And then you stub your toe and you forget and you say it anyway. Jesus insists that what comes out of your mouth is the reality. If you find yourself privately or in your own thoughts speaking these ways, that's not good. And don't then say, well, it's okay. God won't take it into account because now you're just kind of doubling up on things. We get this 11-verse exposition of the wicked, and it's not so we can look down on them and feel superior. I think it's so we can be warned. His mouth is filled with cursing, deceit, and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. And his words, then we get to the fact that he hunts the innocent, the poor, and the helpless. And the language here is of a hunter. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are stealthily watching for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. And here's another point we want to make, and I'm not going to delve too far into the issues on social justice and stuff, but where there is real injustice, where there is real oppression, where there is real um, wronging men against men, we need to abhor it. I know a lot of the debate is, okay, what is unjust, what is wrong, what is this? But where this is happening, it's awful. And we, of all people, need to be the ones, when we see it, to say, that is awful, that is wicked. Oh, Lord, rise up and do something about it. I don't think David's using too many word pictures. I think they're legitimately raiding parties, taking out travelers, taking out the poor. Those types of things are happening. It's, It's a little clearer and more simple to see. Clearly, that's wrong. But there are subtler ways of doing this, and so we ought to work through these issues. Because David is incensed and upset by it. He's not just upset with his own suffering. Remember, he's afflicted. We've dealt with that. But he's also equally concerned with the affliction of others. Again, we can be so myopic and self-focused that who cares what's happening to them is happening to me of all people, Right? David is concerned for his own suffering, his own adversity, and the adversity of others. Okay, his character sketch, and we did that very quickly. We get again to David's cry. You're starting to see the pattern here. We, 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 look, at, we look at what's going on, and then he cries out in verses 12 through 15. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation. You may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. We get a sandwich here, verse 
12 and 15 being the, the exhortations, the prayer requests to God, that he would arise, that he would not forget the afflicted, and that he would break the arm or the power or the strength of the wicked and the evildoer and, and deal with them until there is none. Um, David's cry, remember the afflicted, the helpless, and the fatherless. Um, and remove the wicked and the evildoer. Remove them till you find none. Again, this is not taking matters into your own hands. This is looking for God's judgment and justice now. Now we take comfort that there is a final judgment coming, and yet we can still call even now, Lord, restrain evil in the land. Lord, break the power. That's, that's to break the arm. Your arm is your strength. Your arm is what you hold a spear or a sword with. You break someone's arm, they, what do they have? No strength to harm you. So he's crying out for judgment. We, we were singing, come, O Lord. We pray earlier. It's not simply an Old Testament concept. It's throughout the Bible. God's people finding, God's, finding hope in God's coming justice. David crying out, arise, O Lord, lift up your arm, forget not the afflicted. Taking hope and confidence that God does see and yet still being vexed by why God has not acted yet. And again, he has acted in the past, I know that. He is in control, I know that. He will act in the future, I know that. He's not apparently acting right now. I don't know why he's doing that. That's fine, that's fine. That's a fine place to be, that's where David is. And call on him, cry out to God, ask him for his help. David's cry. And finally, again, David's confidence. And I know I'm repeating my C, but it's the same confidence he had in, in, back in point six. It's the confidence that the Lord is king, which is to say, it's a fine place to be to say, I know my father knows what he's doing, even though I don't have a clue. That's a great place to be. It's a great place to be. That's where David is. You don't need to understand what God is doing to celebrate and rejoice that he's doing something. And so sometimes people ask me, well, why did this happen? Or why did I lose this job? Or why did this disease come upon me? I don't know. But I know God's on his throne. And I know God, according to Romans 8, is, is working all things together for the good of his people. Good not always necessarily meaning happy in the moment, but good, ultimate good. I don't know. Let's cry out to God together to say, Lord, why? Why? Raise your hand. Restrain this. Pull it back. You can, you can do both. Accepting God's control does not mean you can't pray against the things you see as evil, awful, and terrible in this life. Do both. David's confidence. The Lord is king forever. So get this. David is seeing the afflicted apparently being forgotten. Because that's why he says, O Lord, verse 12, forget not the afflicted. The wicked are seeming strong in verse 15. So he says, break their arms. We've got the, the, the afflicted apparently forgotten. The wicked are in strength. David ends this psalm after calling out his prayer request that God would, would judge the wicked. His confidence that whatever, however things turn out, God is king forever. Let's just read the final, um, final verses, 16 through 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from the land. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, 
so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Four points, quickly. David is confident that the Lord reigns forever and destroys his foes. David is confident the Lord reigns forever and will destroy his foes. The present moment excluded, he knows how the story ends. He knows how the story in the past has ended. And again, it's getting back to that confidence. Clear, clear vexation in Psalm 10.1 and in Psalm 10.12 and in Psalm 10.15. Clear, I don't get it. Why? Why? The Lord is king forever. Be vexed. Be confused. Be struggling with what's going on around you. Don't ever doubt that God is king forever and in control. That's what we learn from this psalm. You can be vexed, confused, in anguish, what was going on. Just don't ever let it tempt you to think God's not in control. God is not king. The Lord is king forever. The nations perish from his land. Also, second, never doubt that he hears and strengthens the afflicted. If, if God, if you feel affliction, if you feel under the hand of something, if you, if you feel you have foes, or you are suffering and you cry out to God and it may appear as if he's not listening, such that David has to pray earlier, forget not the afflicted, know with confidence, oh Lord, you do hear the desire of the afflicted. Whatever else is going on, it's not that God's forgotten. It's not that God's put you on hold. It's got, not that God's gone off on a journey and he'll be right back. He's ruling and he hears. He will strengthen your heart and he will incline to you his ear. Point C, he will do justice for the fatherless and the oppressed. The widow and the orphan are the two weakest categories of people in Scripture. Again and again, God's heart for the widow and the orphan and the alien and the sojourner. God, God will do justice for them. God will turn to them. Again and again in Scripture, we see God's heart of compassion going out for the weak. And again, that's the contrast to the strong. The, strong th- the, the wicked thinks he's strong. He says, I will never be moved. Here are the weakest of the weak. God strengthens them. He inclines his ear to them. And he does justice for them. And finally, point D, he will humble and remove the wicked. And I think that's David's ultimate concern. Look at, look at the end of 9, look at the end of 10. So 9 ends with 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord, and then let the nations know that they are but men. Which is, I think they say, put them in their place. Humble them. They've gotten too big for their britches. And of course, Psalm 10 explains exactly how that happens. And man, it's a big deal kind of around here. And I will not be moved and God won't take it into account. And David wants God to humble them, to remind them who they are. Which I think is why after calling the wicked and the evildoer and the wicked and the evildoer throughout this psalm, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man... Let the nations know that they are but men, Psalm 9 ends, so that man who is of the earth, and of course that's in contrast with God who is not of the earth, rules over the heavens, may strike terror no more. David wants God to humble and remove the wicked. So just to summarize what we've learned here, 
We ought to be wrestling with what's going on around us. We ought not to hide our heads in the sand. Just because it's ugly, we don't want to see it. Don't necessarily hide your head in the sand. And we ought to be, God expects his people to be wrestling with it, to be uneasy with it. If your confidence in God's sovereignty causes you to be unmoved and unvexed by wickedness in the world, you got it wrong. You've got it wrong if you're such a staunch Calvinist that you're unmoved. God knows what he's doing. You ought to be vexed by it. But in your vexation and your anguish, the evil in the world around you, you ought to have a strong confidence that God knows what he's doing and is in control. I just don't have a clue what it is. And the faith like children. I've used this example before. My, my, my children sometimes have to go into the dentist and sometimes have to get shots. They don't have a clue why they need to do that. Not really. But dad said I need to go through this. Dad said this needs to happen. I know he loves me. I know what he's doing. That, that's a perfectly fine and childlike way to respond to God and to respond to evil around us. It ought to bother us. We ought to cry out against it. We ought to get on our knees and pray to God. We ought to expect and look for and find hope in God's second coming. In fact, just to show you a, a New Testament example of the same theme, um, turn to 1 Thessalonians. We'll close, close there. But again and again in Scripture, actually 2 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 1. This is the rationale. I just don't want you to think this is an Old Testament thing. You know, the mean, scary, vengeful God of the Old Testament. This is again and again the medicine, the remedy for God's people in dealing with suffering, oppression, and injustice. Let's read this quickly and we'll close in prayer. Psalm, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. See, there's that theme, Judgment. That you may know that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. There's that notion of correspondence. It's fitting. God's going to afflict the afflictors. To repay, it's just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who are, have believed because of our testimony to you was believed to this end with this in mind he says we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God the Lord Jesus Christ Paul writes to a suffering church Jesus is coming he will comfort you he will afflict your afflictors he will set things right not just a Psalm 9 and 10 thing. This is a Bible thing. This is how we ought to respond to evil. Let's pray. Lord, help us to have this heart and this mind. Help us to wrestle through with the difficult challenges that our world um, has going on around us. There are not simple answers. 
But there are some foundational truths. You are king. Your throne is established. You reign. The nations are dust. You are good. You are good to those who seek you. You are good to those who know your name. You are good to those who put their trust in you. And you have judged. And you have rendered judgments. You have, in the past, taken up the cause of the weak and the poor. But we pray that you would do that now. We pray that in this world around us, you would break the power of evil and wickedness. That you would defend the orphan and the widow, the helpless, the poor, the innocent. That you would cause us to examine our own hearts and see that there is not the seeds of that same wickedness there. That same mischief. That same bent for oppression and sin and pride and self-reliance and rebuke it. Cause us to put our trust in you, to seek you. And Lord God, we pray that you would come. You would judge the world in righteousness. That you would comfort the afflicted, afflict those afflicting, and be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.